welcome everybody uh, to our viewers and listeners uh, to this episode of Morpen and Bra in Conversation. Um, and continuing with our theme of looking at the achievements of the world's first socialist state, the Soviet Union, today we're going to be talking about the victory over fascism in World War II, which of course was a culmination of all the achievements to that point. The basis was laid by socialist planning and industrialization and uh, agriculture collectivization, which had happened before then. Um, and it was really a proof of the superiority, if you like, of a, of a planned economy. The fact that the USSR was able, despite being less than 25 years old, was able to defeat uh, German fascism, which was said to be an unbeatable war machine. Uh, quite a phenomenal achievement for the Soviet Union and one for which it will always be remembered and revered. Um, so I'm going to start uh, by asking Comrade Hopal, if you will, uh, to just give us a little bit of information about the origins and the nature of the Second World War. The nature and origin of the Second World War is basically the same as of the First World War. It was a fight between various imperialist powers for the redivision of the world. What made it something different, a new factor in world politics was that by that time, the Soviet Union had come in, in, into existence. And what is more, it was making tremendous progress in building up its industry, agriculture, scientific base, um, and, 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 and uh, in, in, in intellectual base for the progress, progress of the country. So the imperialist powers wanted to fight against each other for the redivision, but they were united in one thing, their hatred of the Soviet Union their first priority of German fascism, as well as of the so-called democratic imperialist powers was that the Soviet Union should be brought to an end. It, it should, it should be, be, be destroyed. And that's precisely why, notwithstanding the fact that German imperialism was a mortal enemy of British uh, and other imperialist powers, and they were fighting over the redivision, re everything was done by Britain, France, and America to actually wink into a powerful force, German fa fa fascism. Everything was done, was, 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 was done by them. Of course, what we're getting now is a rewriting of the history. And this always reminds me of what Engels said long while ago, the bourgeoisie turns everything into a commodity. Hence also the writing of history. It's part of its being, of its condition of existence to falsify all goods. It falsified the writing, writing of history. And the best paid historiography is that which is best falsified for the purposes of the bourgeoisie. So Caleb Jyoti, our writings will never be the best paid and they will not be best sold under the present conditions because we don't falsify the writing of history in the interest of the bourgeoisie. So uh, they will tell you now how the Soviet Union was at fault in the start of the war, etc. Soviet Union was not at fault. Everything was done. I mean, la la later on, Churchill would be reinvented as a great fighter against, 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 against fascism. Actually, Churchill was very happy with Hitler. He was very happy with Mussolini. He went to Italy and spoke in the Scala theater 
and saying to Mussolini, addressing Mussolini, had I been an Italian subject, I would have voted for, for you. Uh, this is on record. I'm not, not making it up. And the British Foreign Secretary uh, said in 1938 that Herr Hitler had destroyed communism in Germany and he was expected to destroy it elsewhere and he was actually entitled to some reward for his services to, to, to humanity if, if you like. So the, the British first of all entered into the Anglo-German Naval Treaty which allowed Germany to break out of the constraints and shackles of the Versailles Peace Treaty which had imposed a lot of restrictions on German rearmament, re, re on German economic economic reconstruction and then a year later hitler was allowed to send his forces and occupy the ruhr you know french bourgeoisie alone had sufficiently strong forces to prevent him from 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 doing so they were relying on them not to do so hitler had even told one of his generals that if france came there to the rescue uh, uh, to 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 prevent Germany from occupying the Ruhr, he would commit suicide. Obviously, he was absolutely clear that nothing, nothing of the sort would happen. And then later on, huge amounts of American dollars flowed, flowed in to, to, to build, build Germany. Right even after Soviet Union had entered the war and before uh, uh, the year 1941 was out, Harry Truman, who was later to become the president of the United States said, if Russia should look winning, we should help Germany. And if it looked as though Germany would win, we should help Russia. Our job was to weaken both of them and destroy both of them. One, a rival imperialist power, the other one, the Socialist Soviet Union. But of course, the attack by the Japanese in December 1941 on Pearl Harbor changed that calculation, uh, you know, man proposes, God disposes. So that's this kind of mishap can continue to happen. Then social democracy's position was exactly the same. They didn't want Soviet victory. They continue to ask for not just the defeat of the Germans, but the victory of what they called British American democ democracy. That is precisely what, what happened. And when uh, the Hitlerites had overrun France and the French National Assembly met to establish the Vichy government, a puppet government of Germany. Overwhelming majority of the Social Democratic deputies in the French National Assembly voted for General Pétain. They voted for the, for, for the Vichy government. They had done everything possible that they could in order to bring Hitler into, 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 into power. Thanks, Rapal. And Kayla, Rapal touched quite a bit on it actually already, but do you want to talk to us a bit more about the, the complicity uh, of the West in, uh, in the rise of fascism? Sure. Well, I mean, as far as the underlying cause, I mean, German imperialism, uh, they had colonies, uh, they were a rising imperialist power, and World War I was largely them being stripped of their colonies. Um, it was, you know, they were trying to challenge the British and the American and the French imperialists in alliance with, with Austria and the Ottoman Empire. And they were defeated and stripped of their colonies. Um, and then, uh, you know, you had the 1920s, you had Weimar Germany. Um, 
And but then it, it appears the rise of fascism was largely German imperialism trying to reassert itself as an imperialist power, uh, retake their colonies, etc. And that involved kind of, you know, Bonapartist maneuvering and, and the rise of, you know, you know, these German industrialists and imperialists, Holomer Schacht and Krupp and Tyson seizing control of the government, crushing the workers' movement, uh, but also asserting their independence from British and American forces, refusing to pay back their loans. Uh, you know, they tell the story of Franklin Roosevelt, apparently had a meeting with Holomer Schacht, uh, the Nazi economist, uh, and Schacht said to, uh, you know, to Roosevelt, he said, you know, we're not going to pay back our loans uh, from American and British banks, and Roosevelt laughed about it. And he said, he said, serves those Wall Street guys right. Um, and that, that, you know, on some level, yes, and, and that's the crazy thing, is that Hitler had been backed and supported by the British, by the Americans, by Henry Ford, as a way to crush the German communist and socialist movement. Um, but then when he took power, he did assert a level of, of independence, and he was trying to reassert the power of German imperialism, and that challenged them. Um, and, uh, you know, essentially, uh, you have a situation where, and, and I've always, I thought this is a very interesting observation, but one of the greatest fears of the of the British imperialists in particular has always been the Germans and the Russians aligning. Um, and this goes way back. I mean, long before there was a socialist revolution in Russia, there was a fear that if the Germans and the Russians were to become allies, then at that point, British uh, British imperialism's efforts to control the European mainland would be almost you know impossible. They would have no ability to do so. So there's always been a huge effort on the part of the British to manipulate, to maneuver, to try and, and you know, turn the Germans against the Russians, the Russians against the Germans. And even today, we can see, you know, this, this echo, right, with, with what's going on with the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, how they're trying to tell the Germans uh, what natural gas they can import. And they, you know, they have to ship their natural gas all the way in from the United States. And how dare this Nord Stream 2 pipeline be set up? Uh, there's still that fear and that, that the German imperialists, you know, they never have been really, they're definitely an imperialist country, but they've never been part of the imperialist club. You know, the French, the British, the American imperialists, they got on the scene way ahead of time. Germany didn't become a unified, you know, country, an imperialist power until pretty late in the game. And that, uh, you know, in World War One, they tried to, tried to seize a piece of the world for themselves. That didn't work out too well. World War II, they tried to seize a piece of the world for themselves. Also didn't work out too well. Um, and now, ever since then, Germany has been, you know, I mean, they've been, you know, they've, they've, at this point, they have U.S. troops on their soil. Uh, the idea of German imperialism reemerging to reassert itself uh, as an economic power is pretty hard to imagine with NATO troops on their soil, etc. But even now, you can see there are little rivalries. You know, they seem to be a little more willing to do business with the Russian and the Chinese. Uh, they seem, you know, they seem a little, uh, a little bit, uh, a little bit reluctant. Every so often, they will push back a little bit against, you know, the British and the Americans trying to tell them to do. There are contradictions within the imperialist camp. World War II was largely those contradictions boiling to the surface, uh, at, you know, in a moment that led to a world war. Very much so. <clears throat> Papal, do you want to um, talk to us a little bit about the um, the Soviet position on war with imperialism and what led to the Soviet-German non-aggression pact? And just briefly, you know, um, there's a lot of slander, um, a lot of hyperbole thrown around about that non-aggression pact as if it was the most shocking thing that could possibly happen, you know, for the Soviet Union to agree not to start a war uh, with uh, Hitler's Germany, when in fact, what's always missing from these conversations is the fact that every other European power 
had been approached by the Soviet Union for a mutual defense alliance and refused. And they had all signed non-aggression pacts with Germany before the Soviet Union signed one. You know, we, we see on a British TV, we see the footage of, um, uh, what was his name, the prime minister then? Chamberlain. Chamberlain, thank you. Never coming back, waving his piece of paper, saying peace in our time when he's handed over uh, basically Czechoslovakia to the Germans uh, in a non-aggression pact, in a fine, if you go that way, we'll leave you alone pact, right? Uh, but a, it's the Soviet Union that's always accused of appeasing Hitler, right? So I wondered, Hapal, if you could talk a bit about that. Well, the Soviet position on the question of war with imperialism may be summarized as follows. First, Soviet Union did not desire to have a war with any imperialist country. She needed peace. She needed peace to build uh, a, a prosperous life for her own, her own people and, and be mainly concerned with economic development within the, within the country. But of course, it wasn't up to the Soviet Union whether there would be a war or not, uh, be, because there was imperialism wanting, to war, wanting a war with the Soviet Union. And secondly, therefore, Soviet Union's position was, should it come to war, she should not be fighting on her own against imperialism, let alone against the combined forces of all the imperialist countries. Thirdly, to this extent, she was quite clear that there were contradictions between the fascist imperialist powers and the non-fascist, which they chose to describe as democratic imperialist countries. They were democratic only to the extent that they did not have fascist regimes of open, naked, terroristic dictatorship of finance, finance cap capital. So to exploit those divisions, they sought to have collective security arrangements so that if German imperialism should commit aggression against any country, they will all combine together to prevent it. They wouldn't play ball. And Stalin asked this question, is it because the combined power of America, Britain, and France is less than that of Germany? He said, no. On the contrary, they're far more powerful, but they're retreating for a particular reason. It's called the policy of appeasement. It's not really the real name of it should be. It was a policy of encouraging, encouraging Germany in the easterly direction. There's a last vast territory full of wonderful natural resources. They are also our class enemies. Why don't you go there? We could come to some sort of arrangement you go and take that. Don't come after our colonies. That, that, that was really the basically the part of it. At the 18th Party Congress, which took place in early 1939, Stalin dealt with this, 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 this question. And he said, you know, they're retreating precisely because they want to ask Germany to move in an easterly direction. And when Sudetenland was granted to to Germany, he, Stalin said the districts of Czechoslovakia had been actually handed over to Germany as a down payment for launching an aggression against the Soviet Union. And now, of course, the Germans are not really actually paying the bills and sending them, to use his language, sending them to, 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 to Hades. And that is what happened. When the Munich Agreement was signed by Germany, Britain, France, and Italy, Soviet Union was not even informed, let alone consulted. They all rushed, rushed to sign, sign this uh, 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 agree, agreement with, with Germany, the, the Munich Pact. 
it's completely forgotten. It's written out of history books as though it did not take place. As Jyoti has rightly pointed out, Chamberlain came back from signing the agreement, waved this piece of paper and regarded it as peace in our time. That's what he said at the airport. And when he took that paper to the House of Commons, almost unanimously, the House of Commons broke into a thunderous applause. There was nobody who opposed it. Subsequently, people were to say, Chamberlain betrayed this idea. No, Chamberlain was representing the British policy. Only when that policy failed, that the war actually started in 1940, Chamberlain was replaced by Churchill. Because by that time, Churchill came to realize that Hitler was not doing what was expected of him, namely attack the hated Soviet Union. He was actually after, after, after their the, the, the colonies. So the Soviet Union, having explored these, these various avenues of collective security uh, agreement, and they did everything possible, everything possible. And up to the last moment, only a few days before the signing of the Soviet-German non-aggression pact, they were prepared to sign a collective security agreement. And belatedly, under pressure from British public opinion, uh, the Chamberlain government decided to send uh, a, a, a delegation to, to Moscow to explore the possibility of signing some sort of a, a agreement. And they didn't send a minister. They had been running after Hitler. He had only to nod and everyone would run, run to Munich to meet, meet Herr Hitler. They, they didn't send a minister. They sent an admired, a, a retired Admiral Drex with a sort of four-barreled name. I can't remember, Ernie Earl something, something, something. They sent there. And what's more, when he reached there, he had no plenipotentiary powers to sign a, sign a binding agreement. There was no military aspect aspect to it. They were not guaranteeing anything. What's more, they were asking the Soviet Union to guarantee Poland's independence. But Poland and Romania both denied Soviet forces, the, the, the Red Army, the right to enter their territories. How do you come and defend people who are actually denying you the right, right to be there? Eventually, it didn't work. So the Soviet Union, on in at the towards the end of August, 1939, entered into the German-Soviet non-aggression pact. It's called the the Ribbentrop-Molotov pact. And to to make it even more scandalous, it's called Hitler-Stalin pact. Because the idea these days is to rewrite history and portray here are these two dictators, the red fascist in the Kremlin and the other fascists in, in, in Berlin who are actually conspiring against the peace of the world. That is not precisely what had happened. The Soviet Union did a wonderful job and in, turned the tables on imperialisms and the, turned the tables on Munich because after signing this agreement, Germany was free to launch its aggression and it of course invaded Poland. So the very country which was supposed to fight against the Soviet Union was engaged in a fight against them. And that, that was what Soviet military power and diplomacy and farsightedness achieved. And it gave the Soviet Union very close to two years of further period for preparing the, for the war that she knew was coming, coming her way and made a contribution 
towards the final victory of the Soviet Union. So that's really what, what ha happened with this pact. That's what the non-aggression pact was. Hitler was begging Stalin, can Ribbentrop be received? And kept on asking for an early meeting. And the funny thing is, even when the war started, for 18 months, it was a phony war. Not because the British didn't have the forces to wage the war, because they still hope to come to an agreement, and we shall discuss it later, even during the war, these attempts to come to an agreement with Germany continued. They didn't materialize for various reasons, which we, which we can discuss. So they were hoping, because people forget when Poland was attacked, why didn't the French and the, and the British forces go to actually prevent the defeat of Poland? Poland collapsed without any intervention by either Britain or France, who had very powerful forces. They didn't do that because there was still the hope, let him have Poland. Who the hell cares for the Poles, right? Now you'll be told Britain went to war to defend the freedom of Poland. It didn't. It didn't give a damn about Poland. Poland was being used in exactly the same way as Ukraine is being used today by NATO to wage a war, war, war against, against Russia. And the Poles were stupid enough to allow themselves to be used like that, just as the present Ukrainian regime is stupid enough to become an instrument in imperialist policy of aggression against Russia. So that, that's really what, what the position was. Papal's brought to our attention there something that we kind of come back to repeatedly, which is this uh, willful rewriting of history. And, uh, you know, if the output of Hollywood is anything to go by, then the rewriting of World War II history is a particularly favourite topic for our rulers and particularly uh, given a lot of attention uh, in the USA, Caleb. Sure. No, the narrative that I got uh, growing up in the 90s was the neoconservative narrative of the Second World War, where, uh, you know, Hitler came to power in Germany and the USA didn't engage in regime change and invade immediately and overthrow Hitler. And so then Hitler started invading countries and the USA didn't engage in regime change and bring down and overthrow this brutal dictator. And so World War II and the Holocaust all happened because the USA didn't engage in imperialist regime change and Saddam Hussein is another Hitler and Gaddafi is another Hitler and all the regimes around the world that the United States is against. They're all another Hitler and World War II proves that you have to invade and overthrow governments. Uh, the United States needs to get involved. And this is so much of a bunch of malarkey. I mean, it's just so ridiculous. Uh, I mean, the United States was actively supporting the Nazis in their efforts against the Soviet Union. You had Henry Ford, uh, who was doing business with them. You had IBM that designed the punch card machines you know, for the Holocaust. That's been exposed. Every concentration camp prisoner had a, a punch card. And this like primitive computer that IBM designed was used to track you know, concentration camp inmates. Uh, you know, I mean, the American imperialists were heavily involved in helping the Nazis set up and working with them and pushing the Nazis to fight the Soviet Union. So the idea that that World War II, the Holocaust or whatever, is an argument for U.S. military interventions around the world is is false. But that's the narrative uh, that we got. Uh, we got, you know, in the 90s, at least. Now, I know things have changed quite a bit. You know, the, the way the way that the history is interpreted always has a lot more to do with the present than with the past and that they're constantly subjecting these things to reinterpretation. Um, but yeah, in the nineties, when I was a kid, the narrative we got of world war II was that it was the case for us regime change operations around the world, which is just ridiculous. That's fascinating, isn't it? Um, 
Would you like to talk a little bit, Caleb, um, about the initial reverses? Um, you know, because there was a, there were predictions by the ruling class that the the USSR would uh, just collapse very quickly, as France had done. You know, France was a big, powerful imperialist power with a big military. The Soviet Union had been presented to the workers in the West, and I think to some extent the ruling class had believed its own propaganda as something very kind of weak and unpopular. And, you know, Trotsky had assured all the leaders in the West that the Soviet leadership was terribly unpopular, and the second there was an invasion, uh, the people would rise up against their own government, and the whole flimsy economy would come down like a pack of cards, um, so there was this expectation that there would be a collapse. And of course, there were some initial reverses. The Operation Barbarossa, that invasion was a very overwhelming kind of uh, attack, assault, you know, sort of 95%, I think, of the fascist forces were on that front. Uh, it was a huge assault on the Soviet Union that was meant to topple it quickly. That didn't that didn't quite happen. So although there were reverses, the, the predictions of a of a total collapse did not come about, did they? No, I mean, and, and that's the thing is the United States was very blown away. Many people in the United States were just in awe of the Soviet Union's military achievements. And yes, the United States did give support to the Soviet Union in their fight against the Nazis, but you can't downplay uh, what they achieved. And um, I always like to point out to people that during the Second World War, Hollywood made some pretty good movies about, about the Soviet Union and their fight against fascism. Uh, probably the best of which is Mission to Moscow, which is based on the diaries and the writings of Ambassador U.S. Ambassador Davies, which is about the Moscow trials and the Trotskyites and other things. But also there's a very good film called The North Star, uh, which was written by Lillian Hellman. Uh, Lillian Hellman was uh, a member of the Communist Party, and she wrote The North Star, which is about a group of Ukrainian villagers fighting the Nazi invaders. Um, there's a, a great, uh, you know, kind of short propaganda reel that was made by uh, for the U.S. Armed Forces. It's called The Battle of Russia. Um, and it kind of, you know, describes the intervention um, and that uh, the whole world was kind of cheering for the Soviet Union and their amazing unpredicted victories um, against the Nazis, uh, you know, the Battle of Stalingrad, uh, so many turning, you know, so many moments that were just dramatic turning points where the Soviet Union was waging a war. I think I think Anna Louise Strong, one of my favorite Marxist writers, she describes it as a war of the entire people. Um, and I think she wrote a book called The Soviets Expected It, arguing that this idea that Stalin was just in shock, that this could never happen. That's ridiculous. The Soviet Union had prepared for the war. They were all set to defend their country. And when the invasion came, the Soviets expected it and they waged a war of the entire people. And uh, largely, Russia was where the, the Germans uh, met their end, largely. So there you go. Definitely. Hopal. Well, the initial reverses were basically for three re reasons. First reason was the advantage of sur surprise that the Nazis had. Not surprise in the way that the bourgeoisie and Trotskyites interpret, i.e. Stalin believed Hitler, I didn't believe Hitler would attack. No, surprise is just, it was known that Germany would attack, but nobody knew the date of it. There were concentrations of German troops across the border, but Stalin quite rightly under the circumstances did not want to take precipitate steps in case it was false propaganda being spread by Anglo-American imperialism. That's a very, very important uh, aspect in it. But when the war came, let nobody believe that the Germans simply walked in. In fact, 120 German divisions were knocked out in the first three, three, three months of the war 
by, by the Soviet army. Thousands of their aeroplanes, thousands of their tanks and armored vehicles were destroyed. And hundreds of thousands of their soldiers put out of action through death or, 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 or in injuries that. So there was this question of, of surprise attack. The, the second reason uh, for, for the reverses was earlier German mobilization. Germans had been fighting war in Europe for two years. They had overwhelmed country after country. Many countries were simply taken over the telephone. You know, you phone the Austrians, we'd be coming. Can you arrange a drinks party to welcome our, our soldiers? And that's what they did. The biggest country to be defeated was France. France was considered to be very powerful with a very powerful army. It was supposed to have a line called the Maginot Line, just as the fascists in in Finland had a line called the Mannerheim line. This was supposed to be impregnable. And, and of course, they were beaten there. And so the Germans had experience. And what's more, they could bring into play not only their own armed strength and their armed forces, but the forces of the countries they had defeated or who were allied and sympathetic to work towards them. With the result, they had 240 divisions, including their seven, 176 of their own and the remainder of, of, of their allies. In the West, they had a few divisions left for garrison duty, duty to look after the territories con conquered by them. That is precisely what was happening. But the third and the most important reason is, and talking about alliances, would you want to have an ally like that? was the absence of a second front. If you think your uh, ally is being attacked on the Eastern Front, wouldn't you open a second front in the West in order to divert his forces and divide, divide his, 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 his strength? No, they didn't. In early 1942, that few months after the start of the war, Molotov visited London and he entered into an agreement with the British and the American governments that Later in 1942, by August, September, a second front would be opened. However, a few months later, Churchill visited Moscow, met Stalin along with Harriman, the representative of President Roosevelt of, of the United States. And they both reneged on that promise. They said, we had never promised to open a second front now. They kept on delaying the second front from month to month and year to year. Eventually, the Second Front was opened in June 1944. That is three years after the Soviet Union was attacked and only a year before the war ended. And that Second Front was opened not to help the Soviet Union, but to prevent the Soviet forces, which by then were on the verge of liberating the whole of Europe single-handedly. So to grab as much territory as possible before the so Soviet reached that. These were the three reasons for earlier Soviet reverses. But all the same, what has to be understood is the tremendous achievements of the Soviet Union. Caleb has already mentioned, Jyoti has mentioned, the battles of Moscow, Stalingrad, Kursk, and Berlin, and their behavior during the siege of Leningrad are eloquent testimony to their strength. And whatever calumnies showered on the Soviet Union, whatever attempts made to belittle its role 
in the Second World War, they shall always be remembered by the grateful humanity as a contribution towards the de defeat of the scourge of fascism and towards advancing the co cause of progressive humanity. And perhaps you'll give me a few minutes later on to, to ask the question of why did the Soviet Union not collapse? What was the reason for its successes in these battles? Oh, you're muted, Jyoti. Sorry, the dog was barking. Uh, Hapal, uh, I think you should do that now. Well, the reasons for the success of the Soviet Union are very significant. The first one was elimination of the fifth column. When the Moscow trials took place and prominent capitulators and people who were, would have collaborated with the Nazis and half a dozen generals, top generals in the Soviet army were actually found guilty and ex executed. At the time the trials took place, the general story spread around by imperialism and the Trotskyites was these were fixed up uh, staged trials, trials brought on by, by Stalin to eliminate his, his, his rivals. But Americans and the British knew better than that. Caliph has already mentioned uh, uh, Ambassador Joseph Davis. He wrote, he was present there. He attended almost all the Moscow trials in, in person. And he wrote to his Secretary of State, Cordell Hull, saying, I'm afraid these accused are guilty. They've done what they're, they're charged with. And Cordell Hull wrote to him, we know that, but this is not what we want the public to know, so will you keep shut? And it was only during the war, when the war started, that actually Hollywood could speak the truth and make the film that Caleb has already referred to on the Battle of Stalingrad, the Battle of Russia, and what strength Russia had. And it even actually brought a film about the Moscow trials, which showed how these various people were capitulators. And when that propaganda was being made, that these people were, uh, you know, unjustly tried, etc. And Stalin said, these people are talking drivel. Are they trying to tell us that the Soviet Union would be stronger if all the spies, murderers, assassins, capitulators and traitors were left loose uh, to, do, to do their work. Are these people giving themselves uh, uh, easily as to what, what their position is? No, the Soviet Union was strengthened by these trials. Whereas when the Hitlerite armies marched into other countries, they were always met by collaborators. There were no quislings and there were no hyalins in, 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 in the Soviet Union. The Soviet people united as one. So that was one reason for the victory of Soviet Union. No fifth column. The second reason was socialism. The Soviet Union had built her industry, had collectivized her, her, her agriculture and put on a modern uh, basis. When the collectivization was taking place, there were some people who complained that the tempo was too high and it was taking a very heavy toll and people had to sacrifice. And Stalin said, yes, we have to sacrifice. The tempo is too high. If we had very peaceful times and we could do our work in a, in a leisurely fashion, that would be fine. But we haven't got that much time. In his famous words, uh, spoken to a conference of business executives in 1931, he said, we in the Soviet Union are 50 or 100 years behind advanced countries. 
we make up that difference in 10 years or they crush us. And even Isaac Deutscher has to say that spoken on hindsight after the war, these were a brilliant prophecy fulfilled. And the collectivization of agriculture had taught the peasantry to use tractors and harvester combines. And these people could easily be trained to use modern weaponry, what modern tanks and various other, other equipment. And Deutscher says that collectivization was a preparatory school for the, the, the Soviet soldiers to fight, 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 fight in the Second, Second World War. So far from being disastrous, far from being an imposition on Soviet people, collectivization and so construction of socialist industry saved the Soviet Union. The third reason for the victory of Soviet Union was the existence of the USSR. USSR was a very unique institution of the kind that the world had never known before. Here were dozens of nationalities and national groupings who were combined together in the building of socialism and who were very proud of their achievements and were determined grimly to defend those achievements. So various peoples of the Soviet Union, from Russians to Belarusians, to Kazakhs, to Tajiks, to Turkmenes, to Georgians, to Armenians, united as one person. Of course, there were a few traitors like Banderites, whose descendants today are fight, fighting in Ukraine on behalf of NATO. But apart from this tiny, filthy scum, Soviet people fought together. And the wonderful stories of their heroism. Ukraine was not anti-Soviet. More than 5 million Ukrainians fought in the Second World War for the Red Army. Hundreds of generals came from, from Ukraine in the Second World War. So Soviet Union's existence was extremely important. And then, of course, on top of that was the question of the ideology. Stalin said at the end of the 17th Party Congress, which had taken place after the completion of the first five-year plan, comrades, these are spectacular achievements. To what do we owe our victories? And he answered his own question to the fact that we have worked under the banner of Marx, Engels, and, and Lenin. What is the conclusion to be drawn? We shall continue to be victorious as long as we continue to follow the banner of Marx, Engels, and Lenin. That ideology animated the Soviet soldiers who in their millions went to their deaths with the slogan for the motherland and for comrade Stalin. Stalin was not an evil dictator, ignored. He was actually the spirit behind the whole, the whole thing. He inspired Soviet people in a way that nobody at that time in the Soviet Union could, could, could have done. And th th this is admitted to, even by people like, people like Deutscher, that Stalin was a, a, a great in, in, inspiration during, during, during the, those days. He inspired the Soviet people to fight as one against the, the Nazis. Nazis want a war of extermination, he said. Yes, they'll have a war of extermination. We shall exter exterminate them. But it's not a war against, against the German people. 
It's a war against the Nazis. And the Soviet Union fought for the demilitarization of, of Germany and for the denazification of Germany. That it didn't take place is all owing to the fact that all the Nazis were taken under wing by America and Britain and trained to be uh, there and do do their dirty work for them. So that's precisely why the Soviet Union was successful and achieved the glorious successes that it, 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 it did because of these various reasons. Thank you. And you really um, highlight for us as any examination of sort of any aspect of that period of Soviet history does, just why it is there's so much animosity, so much vitriol spouted daily and hourly still so long after he died against Joseph Stalin, why they hate and detest his record and his history so much, our ruling class. And it's really, you know, that he and the Bolshevik party under his leadership gave such firm Marxist scientific leadership, inspirational leadership to their people on every single front. You know, the fact that they successfully destroyed the fifth column, you know, which strengthened uh, the Soviet Union so greatly uh, in the in the lead up to the war, you know, they still spitting about it today, you know, just like they're still spitting about the fact that they pulled off this non-aggression pact and, and pushed the Nazi um, attention away from the Soviet Union just when the British and the French thought they'd done the job and it was going to be a fight between their two enemies. You know, they're spitting about that still today and desperately trying to make us, the working class, also spit about it and think what an evil man Stalin was for performing these, you know, brilliant feats. And, um, you know, the fact that socialism, as you said, created this new generation of workers who had been modernised in their, in their culture, in their education, in their scientific uh, kind of understanding that they were ready to then become soldiers on a modern battlefield, not because the Soviet Union was trying to create an army. It had inadvertently created people who were, who were able to wage a modern war precisely because it had modernized every aspect of, of its society and got people used to, you know, peasants who in the First World War had no guns and no coats and no boots, you know, but by the Second World War, uh, they were no longer these backward and bereft peasants. They were a, a modern, proud people who had something really meaningful to defend. And, and the, her part that really, you sum that up with the slogan that they took into the battlefield. And as you said, you know, the flower of Soviet youth was sacrificed, but they sacrificed themselves in order to defend what they had, what they had built, what their people had achieved. And that's something that speaks to people, I think, everywhere still, whenever you read about it and understand it, you know, it speaks to you very deeply, that that level of motivation uh, and what that really meant. Um, before I move on, Caleb, did you have anything you wanted to add on that? Well, um, in terms of the second front, um, you know, there there was apparently there was a, a popular joke at the time. Uh, and the, the, the joke goes like this, that uh, Winston Churchill was meeting with a very prominent rabbi. And the rabbi said, Winston Churchill, there are two ways you can win the Second World War and you can defeat the Nazis. And he said, all right, go ahead. Tell me the two ways. He said, well, the first way is that you can, you know, you can pray to God 
and asked God to send an army of angels, cherubim and seraphim, and they'll have flaming chariots, and they'll have lightning bolts, and they will come down and smash the Nazis from heaven, and it will be a miracle, and the whole world will be in awe of it. And Winston Churchill said, okay. He said, obviously, you know, can we hear the second option now? And he said, oh, sure, you can open up a second front. That's the second <laughs> option. You know, uh, and, and uh, you know, it was they were so reluctant to to open up the second front um and they let the soviet union do the fighting on their own that is a historical fact that often gets ignored we get told that d-day you know was the turning point of the war the war was already the nazis were already being defeated at the point of d-day um you know in the united states there's been you know they had saving private ryan and the longest day and there's this huge effort d-day was obviously a big day where a lot of people died and uh, you know, my grandmother was was a was a nurse in Britain who was dealing with the wounded who were coming back from it. It was a it was a big moment. But the Soviet Union had already turned the tide of the war, and that doesn't get widely acknowledged. So um, I thought that's worth pointing out. And that the Communist Party in the United States, a lot of people say the Communist Party, oh, they didn't raise anything during the war. They didn't protest. They just went along with it. They actually had demonstrations demanding the opening of a second front. Uh, that was one thing they did. They had second front now. Uh, they they had ads that were taken out in newspapers demanding the creation of a second front. They they pushed very hard for the creation of the second front. So I just wanted to, to raise that. Very much so. Um, let's come back a little bit to something Harpal mentioned earlier, which was the fact that um, Almost throughout the war, the imperialists continued to conspire in various ways against the Soviet Union. So one of the ways, as you were just talking about, Caleb, is their refusal to open the Second Front. So they're officially allies and they were sending a bit of, you know, uh, uh, military aid uh, and such to the Soviet Union. But they were at the same time undermining the Soviet Union's uh, ability to hold out, sort of secretly hoping that they would get worn down by refusing to open the Second Front and 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 play their military part in the war. Um, but there were other things going on too, weren't they? I mean, I've been recently looking into the history of fascism uh, and, and imperialist meddling in Ukraine and found that I knew that the Banderaites, the fascist uh, SS Ukrainian, uh, Ukrainian SS uh, divisions um, had been co-opted, you know, they'd been sponsored by German imperialism and had been taken over uh, if you like, by the Americans and British after the war, I didn't realize that, in fact, the Americans and British took over sponsoring them before the war was even over. Um, uh, after Stalingrad, I think they basically sort of started to, 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 to surreptitiously channel funds to them um, and use them again as an anti-Soviet force. So, you know, anti-Soviet plots continued even while the war was still going on. Hapal. Um, you're absolutely right in, in, in that, Jyoti. They, they continued. You see, as early as after the, um, the bat Battle of Moscow and before the, the Battle of Stalingrad, although the Soviet Union had won the Battle of Moscow, she wasn't out of the woods yet. Uh, just on the eve of the Battle of Stalingrad, which was to prove to be a really turning point in the, in, in the history of the Sec Sec Second World War, Churchill wrote a secret memorandum to his cabinet, which was disclosed several years later by, by Macmillan, who later on became the Prime Minister of Britain, uh, saying, you know, it would be a terrible disaster if the Soviet Union was to come victorious out of this war and Russian barbarism was to overlay the culture 
and ancient states of Europe. That's what he's writing. This is, he's the ally. And he was such a hypocrite. While publicly he was showering tremendous praises on the Red Army, what it was doing and tearing the guts out of, out of the Wehrmacht. But he was constantly trying, trying, trying to un, un, undermine it. And after the Battle of Stalingrad, these, these efforts, far from being jettisoned, were intensified because the Battle of Stalingrad proved that there was no way Soviet Union was going to be defeated. So how do you weaken the Soviet Union? And really, literally, up to the last few days of the war, attempts were made to cobble up some kind of alliance whereby Germany would surrender to the Western powers and hand in hand with the Americans and the British will march on the Soviet Union. But what happened by that time was Soviet victories were so swift, no sooner had they made the plans, these plans were rendered quite out of date by, by, by Soviet victories. So Churchill had even in the closing days of the war, and he, he, he reported it to his constituency in Woodford in London in 1954. He'd instructed General Montgomery to collect all the arms from the captured German armies because he said, we need, we will so shortly need to reissue them to the Ger defeated Germans and march with them into Soviet Russia. Then, literally weeks before the war ended, there was a conference held in the basement of the allegedly neutral Sweden in the Baltic port of Lübeck. It's a beautiful city. If you get a chance, go and visit it. It was held between Himmler, the SS chief, from Germany and Count Falk Bernadotte, who, who was the German uh, the Swedish representative there, where at which meeting Himmler signed an agreement to surrender, whereby Germany would surrender to America and, and Britain, and together the three of them will march into the Soviet Union. It came to the knowledge of the Soviet Union. Churchill telegrammed to, to uh, sorry, Hit Stalin telegram to Churchill. Churchill apologized, as was his habit. Apologized, but carry on with the dirty work, all, all the same. But anyway, Soviet victory came swiftly, and soon the Soviet territory was cleared of the German fascist hordes, and the Red Army was marching inexorably, inexorably, exorbly to Berlin. It reminds me of the of the anecdote. It's a real story. Just thirty kilometers in a village outside of Moscow. Uh, 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 at the end of the Battle of Moscow, when the Germans were defeated, a German soldier wrote on the, on the, on the wall, I'm going to Berlin. And some Red Army person wrote a, a rejoinder, see you there. <laughs> you know, and, and, and the Soviet Army was, uh, was there. It was Churchill's attempt that Berlin should not be taken by the Soviet Union. But of course, the agreement had already been made at Yalta between Roosevelt, Churchill and Stalin, which of the allied powers would occupy what zone of Berlin and what zone, zone of Germany. Churchill did his best to renege on that agreement, but he couldn't. A, uh, I think sometimes in April 1945, Roosevelt died and even Truman, who was a real art reactionary, didn't want to renege on that agreement because they still needed 
the help of the Soviet Union in waging war against Japan. That was soon to change with the success of the Manhattan Project and the American detonation of the first nu 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 nuclear we we weapon in the world. So it carried on all the way. There was literally, with allies like that, you do not want to go into the war. And the Soviet Union was watchful. Jyotia said, why Stalin hated? He's answered her own question. Well, wouldn't you hate if your enemies had such successes and you had utter failure all along the line? Stalin will always be hated. Hey, in his own day, Lenin was hated, but now he's been overtaken by Stalin because the most tremendous achievements of the Soviet Union, construction of socialism, the collectivization of agriculture, building of the Soviet armed forces, victory in the, in the Second World War, which was a crowning achievement, and the fact that after the Second World War, within three years, without any reparations from the defeated fascist powers, without any help from anybody, Soviet production had been restored to pre-war levels. And within three years after that, the Soviet GDP had increased by 100%. So that was the achievement of the Soviet Union during the period of Stalin. Of course, they hate him. And Stalin would have said, how else would you expect them? And I don't mind, really. I want to be hated by these people. I want them to vilify me. I don't want my enemies to, enemies to, to, to praise me. And that's really the reason that that took place. So we understand why our rulers vilify uh, our leaders and their victories. But um, Caleb, are there any workers, uh, individuals or organizations who remember and publicize these these facts and these feats? Well, I mean, I think that the um, the various Marxist groups of the world certainly do that. And that that also, uh, you know, some of it will slip through. I mean, if you if you look into various histories of the World War, the Second World War, it's just really hard to not acknowledge the achievements of the Soviet Union. And as much as they try to downplay them or denigrate them, they slip through uh, when they're talking about the Second World War because it's just something you can't ignore. One thing that um, that I I've heard recently, and I think it's worth addressing. Uh, is now, you know, when they're accusing the Soviet Union of being this monstrous society, they have the Holodomor thing, they have the Moscow trials. We'll now hear a, no a newer narrative we hear as they talk about what they call, quote unquote, forced deportations. Have you heard this? Where they claim that the reality is that during the Second World War, the Soviet Union was invaded. 27 million people were killed. It was a devastating conflict. Um, but in order to win the war, they did move people around the country on the basis of their nationality. And this was actually a policy that was necessary and was very effective. Um, and it resulted in a lot of Jews being rescued from the Nazis. Like if the Nazis came into the area where there were Jews, they would all be killed. Um, but if you moved people around on the basis of their nationality, you moved the Jews away from the Nazis. Um, and in certain areas like Chechnya, where there were pro-Nazi insurgencies, they would clear the area. They would move all the civilians out of there so they could defeat the pro-Nazi insurgents, right? And in Ukraine, similarly, when the Banderites were having their, their pro-Nazi insurgency, they would move all the civilians out of the area so they could defeat the insurgents. And uh, this was a way of, of doing it uh, that you could you not have civilians in the way. Uh, but this has been rewritten to somehow be a crime against humanity. This is, this is ethnic cleansing is the term that they're describing, right? You know, they forcibly deported the Chechens. It was, you know, they were deporting them on the basis of their nationality. Um, now, one thing I have heard is that because it was a military situation, because people were dying, uh, that there was on some level, um, a, a level of trust 
um, that, you know, if you were of a certain nationality and your nationality was known to have more fifth column elements, you wouldn't be trusted as much as somebody of a, of a nationality that did. Right. And that many people have argued that that was tantamount to national oppression and such. And and maybe there were ways that was carried out during the war uh, that, that were problematic, but it made sense. Right. If you have a war where it's like people look at this, they don't seem to realize 27 million people dying is a pretty big deal. This is not, you know, let's sit back and come up with the most egalitarian friendly policy. This is a situation where millions of people are dying. People are fighting for their lives. There are dead bodies in the street. There's there's war going on. And on those under those circumstances, you have to use very, very rigid and authoritarian measures in order to win and clearing people out of areas on the basis of their nationality trusting people and having kind of a hierarchy of trust based on which nationalities have, you know, consistently been loyal, whereas some nationalities, you know, like Chechens and others, you know, because of because of the fact that many of them went over to support the Nazis, there was some kind of, you know, where certain nationalities were not as trusted as others. I mean, this is all not pretty. This is not good stuff. This is not stuff anyone's happy about. But this is a country fighting for its life in the face of a, a brutal onslaught. And uh, to portray this stuff as if it's somehow an ethnic crime or it's genocide or ethnic cleansing is just absolutely absurd. They were fighting the biggest bunch of genociders and ethnic cleansers uh, that, that the world has ever seen. And they defeated them largely because they had a very rigid, militarized, disciplined policy in which they moved people around, sometimes on the basis of their nationality. I'd like to add something to it. First of all, the Chechens had, had, had shown, shown considerable collaboration with the Nazis. They were not moved during the war because Chechnya was occupied by, by the Nazis. They were moved after the war. And there were two reasons for that. One was the treachery with the Soviet criminal code written long in advance of the war allowed such movement if people proved, proved to be dis disloyal. Secondly, they were even mo moved to various republics in, 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 in Cent Central Asia, Muslim, Muslim uh, uh, do dominated po populations for their own safety. Had they been left there, the, the ordinary Soviet Union uh, citizens would have gone there and killed them with their bare hands. And they didn't want them to be killed, but they just wanted them to be to be made ineffective and denazified. De Secondly, America was not even invaded. Apart from the British uh, uh, launching attacks on White House in 1812, America hasn't faced an invasion from any foreign country. But during the Second World War, it incarcerated tens of thousands of Japanese and treated them very badly for no other reason than they were Japanese, right? Yes. So this is forgotten when Stalin is accused of this and the other. And it's some rich irony. The same Chechens today are giving hell to the NATO forces in, 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 in East, 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 Eastern U Ukraine. So this question of movement of people, as as Caleb has rightly said, when you're fighting for your life and people who prove to be treacherous, you move them around. That's the least that can be done. They were not exterminated. They were moved from their ordinary habitat to, to another place. And Khrushchev brought them back, not because he had particular sympathy with the Chechens. He just was motivated by his visceral hatred of Stalin. Anything that Stalin did, had to be undone because it was done by the evil-minded mind, Stalin. So that's really the question. And Soviet Union didn't just lose human beings. It lost a lot of material resources. During the war, 
1,710 towns were destroyed. 31, uh, sorry, and 70,000 villages were destroyed. Over 31,000 industrial enterprises were destroyed. Uh, 98,000 collective and state farms, which leading means almost half the collective and state farms were stripped bare and their equipment as well as their animals either destroyed or take 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 into to, to Germany. Six million uh, homes and buildings buildings were destroyed. The devastation of the Soviet Union was extremely extensive. In these circumstances, you're asking the Soviet leadership to really be like the rabbi told the story. You're praying to angels that somehow sense will prevail. You've got to deal with people as they are. If they prove to be treacherous, you deal with them and moving them to another place within the Soviet Union was after all such, not, not such a big deal. Certainly not as oppressive as putting people in internment camps for four years or five years or even six years as happened to uh, internees in Britain uh, in pretty horrific... Guantanamo. Yeah, well, let's not even go there. But if we're just talking about the Second World War, you know, like for like, uh, being moved to a place where you can make a living, you have a job, you have your community, you, you have farmland, you have, you know, industry... Uh, you have schools and hospitals and a, and, a, and a life in just in a new location, but with your friends and your family uh, is hardly the most terrible thing that can happen to somebody. Uh, and yet again, it's another one where, you know, really you see a kind of gnashing of teeth by the imperialists because they were foiled to the same as with the Crimean Tatars, right? You know, they plan to use these populations to destroy, weaken, disrupt, sabotage the Soviet war effort. They failed. They're angry about it. They spread lies about what was really going on and try to uh, try to turn the tables and, and reverse the narrative. No, it wasn't they using you know ethnicities against their own interests uh, to as proxy forces for imperialism. No, no, no. The evil the evil uh, Soviets were some kind of awful imperialists. You know, and they adopt the language of socialism when they when they when they point their fingers, you know, oh, it was national oppression. It was, you know, it was uh, against the liberation of, uh, of small peoples, all this sort of thing. And uh, this is our language they use against us, you know, to sort of trick us into feeling sympathy for what were in fact their own proxy forces um, and who, as her past said, actually were dealt with really quite humanely. Uh, now we need to uh, draw this conversation to a close, but I do want to ask both of you before we finish, uh, to talk a little bit about the role of Stalin in particular. We, we've seen how vilified Stalin is, and it's and it's, he's sort of presented as being, you know, the one-man uh, kind of think tank for the whole of the Soviet Union. He's, he's simultaneously oppressing everybody, making every decision, uh, deciding every everything that there is to be decided. He's, he's everywhere all the time. Um, but clearly... Well, that can't be possible for one person on such a, a massive country and a massive uh, industrial, economic and war effort that, that was taking place. He did have a critical role. His leadership was key. So, Hapal, maybe would you like to talk to us a little bit about that? Well, the Stalin is portrayed as a dictator. But Stalin actually, but through a consistent struggle, 
whereby he fought for the correct policy of socialization and industrialization by fighting against the various groups within the party, like the Trotskyites and Bukharanites, by actually uh, conducting the Soviet Union during the uh, new economic policy and then passing on from the policy of restricting the exploited, exploiting tendencies of the Kulaks to actually eliminating them as a class. And by the end of the first five-year plan, he had established through his work such reputation and prestige that he became, if I may say so, the representative spokesperson of the Soviet working class and, and the masses. His power was the power of the Soviet masses. Without that, he would have been nothing. I do not believe that any person, whether he's Hitler, whether he's Churchill, whether he's Stalin, is a single person wielding power. There is a whole mechanism behind it. Stalin became the powerful person, respected worldwide, feared by his enemies, and loved by the masses of people all around the world, precisely because of his leadership. You only have to read his writings. Tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of people around the world have been trained on the basis of his book, Foundations of Leninism, and all, all, all his other writings, because they are the summation of the experience of the Soviet Union in the fight for socialism, in the fight against imperialism, and turning the Soviet Union into a base for world revolution as a motherland of the working class, of the proletariat, of all, all countries. And that's why the Soviet Union enjoyed such sympathy of oppressed people who were seeking liberation from imperialism, of working people who were seeking this social emancip emancipation. Trotsky had hoped, it was more a hope than an expectation, that somehow the Soviet Union would be defeated during the Second World War because it's run by the evil bureaucracy headed by Stalin. And, the, and in the Second World War, it wouldn't last a day if the war remained a war and did become a, become a revolution. Well, up to the end of the war, it remained a war and the Soviet Union was successful. And if millions of soldiers actually went to their deaths by with the name of Stalin, along with the motherland on their lips, that just shows the prestige of, of Stalin. And you read Deutsche, he will tell you how Stalin was revered. And this was not something propaganda conducted by the Kremlin. It was genuine affection for Stalin. And that's why the the predecessors of the SWP, the, the, the IS, International Socialists, when Stalin's, uh, sorry, Joe Deutsch's biography of Stalin came out, Stalin, a political biography. It's a, it's a book I ask you to read. He's very anti-Stalin. He never missed the chance to attack Stalin. But out of that book, Stalin emerges larger than life. If you read that book, or there's a much more honest historian called Ian Gray, who's written Stalin, Man of Destiny. If you read those books, you or even the right-wing professor uh, from Austria, Topich, who pays tremendous, although he hates Stalin, pays tremendous tribute to Stalin's farsightedness and, and intelligence. He said when he concluded the, the non-aggression pact, Stalin knew every line of that pact and what, what it was meant, meant to be. People even accused Stalin of 
taking parts of Poland, you know, that is west of the, uh, that taking the territory on the basis of Kazan line. Well, by doing so, and the Soviet Union didn't actually go into their territories till the Polish state had collapsed. It took 17 days for the Polish state to collapse. It collapsed by 17th of September. Before that, Hitler had been inviting Soviet Union to take over these areas. They wouldn't go, but they went once the Polish state had collapsed. What would you like? That these 13 million should have, including 1 million Jews, should have come under the tutelage of the, of the Nazis? No. So the Soviet Union went, went there. And even Gorbachev, who is so anti-Stalin, who is given the socialism in the Soviet Union, the final coup de grace, on, speaking on the 70th anniversary of the October Revolution in 1987, paid a glowing tribute to Stalin. And as he said, a factor in victory was the discipline, discipl disciplining role that Stalin exercised. With his demands, he achieved the impossible. So Stalin was well and truly the leader of the Soviet armed forces, not because he'd been given that title. It is because he actually understood war in a way that ordinary civilian leaders don't understand. He, uh, he took part and took keen interest in the armaments that were being developed to fight that war. He used to have regular meetings with the engineers who designed aircraft and tanks, etc. how these tanks could be made more, 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 more effective. And he was much, much respected. Marshal Zhukov, because Khrushchev had spread, spread the story that Stalin, after the war started, disappeared and couldn't be found for months. And Zhukov was, he said, I'm often asked the question during the Battle of Moscow, where was Stalin? He was right here in the Kremlin, directing the operations and making provision for the supply of war materials and logistics and all, all, all the rest of it. And he said he was the real commander in chief of the Soviet forces. So when the Soviet Union collapsed, the, the Soviet victory cannot be ignored. So the Yeltsin and his followers erected a statue to Marshal Zhukov, riding a, a, a white horse. And even the bourgeois journalists commented, this was actually a way of avoiding Stalin. They didn't want to mention Stalin, so they brought, brought in Zhukov, as though Zhukov was fighting somewhere in, in, in the abstract and there was no political leadership. Stalin was well and truly at that time, the, 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 I mean, he, the headquarters of the Soviet army, Stavka, were based in his Kremlin office. And he worked there until four o'clock in the morning. He had this awful habit like I have of eating four o'clock in the morning his dinner. And then he went to sleep for four or five hours and woke up and then carried on throughout the war like that. So it's not somebody whose role can just be belittled and dismissed as, 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 as nobody. Thank you. Last word to you, Caleb. Oh, well, I guess just on that point, I'll say, um, you know, if you if you go back and listen to the uh, the album of Woodstock of the 1960s rock and roll bands, one of the bands at Woodstock uh, that played is called Country Joe and the Fish uh, is what they're called. And many people don't realize that that's because uh, the, the two people who started that band, their parents were members of the Communist Party. And the fish was Mao because Mao said that, you know, the masses of the water and the revolutionaries, the fish, 
and Country Joe was Stalin. Um, and they were Stalin and Mao, Country Joe and the fish. Um, and the reason Stalin was known as Country Joe is because he was from he was from a small village uh, in Georgia and that uh, that Stalin had a very deep connection with the Soviet people. Uh, you know, he under he understood the Soviet people. He understood what compromises to make. He understood how to mobilize them to carry out great victories. And that's why Stalin ascended to the leadership of, of the Soviet Communist Party after the death of Lenin was he had a deep connection with the people he knew how to mobilize them and that some of these bolsheviks were from elite kind of wealthier backgrounds and then you had some who were from you know urban centers and trade unions but stalin really had this deep deep spiritual connection with the peoples of the soviet union and that is what enabled him to be such an effective leader and those of us who seek to um, bring socialism to our own homelands while we obviously don't want to buy into any of the chauvinism or nationalism we should seek to have the same kind of connection with the people of our country. Um, and that that's one thing we can learn from Stalin is that, you know, that he was very much a man of the people. He knew the people. He could have a conversation with anybody. There's actually a, a, a biography of him uh, that was published by this awful historian, Simon Seabag Montefiore. But he wrote this book called Young Stalin, which is about Stalin before the revolution. And this is before the revolution. So he doesn't really have a need to smear him. And he, he describes in this book, Young Stalin, a brilliant organizer, a brilliant genius, a political genius. One of the anecdotes in that book is that when the Bolsheviks, you know, they were sent into exile in Siberia, you know, and they're, they're all these people from wealthy backgrounds and they're sitting in Siberia. Oh, my God, this is awful. What are we going to do? Stalin went to the local village, made friends with the Siberians and eventually was elected head of the hunting club. And he became the head of the hunting club. He he could talk to anybody. He could work with anybody. He knew how to organize people. He knew how to win people's trust. He knew how to get people to achieve things they didn't even themselves know they were capable of achieving. Part of Stalin's strength was he was, you know, kind of enable pulling, pulling achievements out of people, pulling, getting people to do better than they thought they could do, pushing people to do things they didn't even think they were they were capable of doing. Studying Stalin as a leader in that sense uh, is very, very important. He was in a lot of ways of, you know, I mean, he was probably the most effective communist leader that we've ever seen and studying his character attributes, how he was able to do that, what we can learn from his achievements, I think is, is something that I, I wish more communists would do. We need more people to try and aspire to have that kind of leadership ability. Before, be, before we break up, can I make one very, very simple point? Sure. We all tend to be Eurocentric. We quite rightly admire and cherish the victories of the Soviets against, against fascism. We must never forget that the First World War did not start in Europe. It started in 1931 with the invasion of Manchuria by Jap Jap Japanese fascists and conquer, conquest of large, large, large parts of China, um, etc. And the contribution made by the Far Eastern people, Chinese, Koreans, Vietnamese, but especially Chinese is great. China lost anywhere between 27 to 30 million people in the war, which was intertwined with fight against Chiang Kai-shek's reactionaries as well as Japanese imperialists. And because it's the year of the Second World War, we must never forget the contribution of, of the Far Eastern people, the, 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 and especially the Chinese people who lost so many people and the tremendous victories that they achieved in that, that war through that great sacrifice. So when the Chinese People's Liberation Army marched into Beijing on the 1st of October and Mao Zedong stood in, 
and announced from the rostrum of Tiananmen Square, Chinese people have stood up. And on the same day, the Soviet Union exploded its first atomic weapon. These were the two atomic weapons that shook imperialism to the core. Had it not been for the subsequent treachery of revisionism, this world would have been a completely different one, shaped by what Stalin and Mao Zedong had done in their respective countries. Well, there's about three new conversations for us to have there, but I'm going to wrap up this one here um, and just leave you really on those uh, words about Stalin. I think Caleb's absolutely right. We should study Stalin, all aspects of his work. His writing is a model of how to communicate complex ideas in a simple way without dumbing down his leadership qualities, you know, his ability that he was famous for listening, 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 listening. He was the first to listen, the last to speak uh, and was famous for that also in his leadership style. Um, so much that we can learn from, from Stalin and from Stalin's Soviet Union. But I'll leave you with the words of Hopal that, you know, the power of Stalin was not the power of one man dictatorship. It was the power of the Soviet masses. And in fact, progressive humanity stood behind Comrade Stalin, put their faith in him because of what he represented to them, which was their cause and their future and our future. So for those reasons, we honor not only the Soviet Union, but Stalin's leading role in all of its achievements. Uh, I'm gonna leave all of you there. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you again to Caleb and to Hapal for a really interesting and, and thoughtful discussion. And we'll see you again next time. Thanks for listening to Proletarian Radio. We aim to bring you the best Marxist analysis on current affairs, revolutionary history, and theory. Do like, comment, subscribe, and share our content to help us reach the widest possible audience. We are a small organization with limited resources, and we need worker support if we are to grow and fulfill our mission. If you are able to make a one-off or regular donation, no matter how small, please visit our website at thecommunists.org and register as a supporter.